0: Welcome back to the Persist Women's Political Engagement Conference. We've had panels on criminal justice reform, as well as on information access, activism, the Black press, and systemic racism in 2020. This year, we are focusing on climate justice. As climate change has become a more urgent and pressing concern for people around the globe, this panel of experts can speak to the intersectional and disproportionate impact this issue presents, particularly in low income and communities of color. Their work from various perspectives has inspired this panel and we are thrilled to welcome presenters from all over the country to this stage tonight. I am particularly grateful to UCR's Dr. Jade Saster for agreeing to moderate this panel. Dr. Sasser is an Associate Professor of Gender and Sexuality Studies at UC Riverside. Her research and teaching focus on how climate change intersects with gender-based activism, reproductive politics, and women's health. She is the author of the award-winning 2018 book On Infertile Ground, Population Control and Women's Rights in the Era of Climate Change. Currently, she is conducting new research exploring the emotional and mental health impacts of climate change on racially diverse youth and how these impacts shape young people's approaches to parenting and the future. Welcome, everyone, and I'll turn it over to Dr. Jade Sasser.
1: Thank you so much, Denise, and thank you, everyone in the audience, for joining us this evening. I am thrilled and excited about this conversation, particularly because it comes on the eve of the International COP or COP26 meetings, which begin this Sunday, October 31st, in Glasgow, Scotland, and these are international climate change meetings. So I would like to introduce our panelists. I'll start with Dr. Sasanika or Sunny Ivy, who is an assistant professor in the civil and engineering, so I'm sorry, civil and environmental engineering department at the University of California Berkeley and the principal investigator of the air quality modeling and exposure lab. She earned her PhD in environmental engineering from the Georgia Institute of Technology in 2016. Her research centers on atmospheric modeling, data assimilation, exposure monitoring, and environmental justice applications. I'm also thrilled to welcome Jackie Patterson, the founder and executive director of the Chisholm Legacy Project, a resource hub for Black frontline climate justice leadership. She is a seasoned social justice practitioner, advocate, and activist. With over two decades worth of experience in the fields of environmental and climate justice, public health, gender and racial justice, and blending all in analysis and programming rooted in intersectionality. Before the launch of the Chisholm Legacy Project, Patterson served as the founding senior director of the NAACP Environmental and Climate Justice Program for more than a decade. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for joining us. We might have a third uh, panelist join us, but I think we will start the discussion uh, and wait for the third panelist to come in. So I would like to uh, begin by uh, helping the audience learn more about each of you. If you can, please tell us about your work, uh, whether in the space of research, activism, policy work, or all of the above, and how your work addresses the issue of climate change. Uh, and let's start with Jackie.
2: Okay. I'm already off mute. Okay. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much. So yeah, my um, work with the Chisholm Legacy Project uh, is is really focused on, uh, is fo- focused on making sure that there are resources for Black frontline climate justice leadership, as it sounds. And so it's everything from developing this online resource hub to be able to connect to connect the communities with resources. It includes providing training and certification support for whatever areas communities might find themselves in need of, whether it's food justice or sea level rise or disaster equity or um, or, le- or just leadership development. Um, we also work on ensuring that there is support specifically for Black women's leadership in terms of everything from making sure that every Black woman in climate who ha- needs access to a coach will have one, to ha- needs access to a respite retreat or a restoration retreat would have access to that. Healing justice resources because there's so much that, that Black women in this movement, we want to make sure that people are held as well. So that's just in a nutshell. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Hope
3: everyone can hear me. So uh, my research, my traditional research centers on air pollution modeling using computational models. And more recently, I've gotten into exposure monitoring with uh, wearable sensors. And so that's what I do on the academic side. Um, I am now considering myself an activist. Um, I do quite a bit of work alongside uh, environmental justice groups, in particular, uh, the People's Collective for Environmental Justice, which is a newly formed collective of uh, longtime advocates for uh, issues in the Inland Empire related to climate and air quality. And I also am very active with the Union of Concerned Scientists. through their concerned scientists activities, such as the clean cars fly in, like giving public testimony to the Environmental Protection Agency,
1: um, et cetera. Thank you. I'd also like to introduce uh, a panelist who just joined us, Dr. Ana Baptista, an assistant professor of professional practice in the graduate program of environmental policy and sustainability management at the New School University in New York. She is also the co director of the Tishman Environment and Design Center at the New School, where she leads collaborative environmental justice and climate justice research and an environmental justice movement fellowship program. Her practice is focused on community based participatory research, and she works directly with environmental justice organizations on a variety of issues from cumulative impacts and EJ policies to national climate mitigation and zero waste policies. Welcome, Dr. Baptista. So the first question, uh, if you wouldn't mind just leaping right in, uh, is to give us a, a sense of the work that you do, uh, whether you do work on research, activism, policy, or all of the above, and how your work addresses climate change.
4: Thank you. I apologize for the technical difficulties. <laughs> um, but yes, I'm um, happy to be here with you um, a little bit about my my work. I'm a professor of practice, so I I mix a little bit of uh, collaborative research, participatory research with organizations um, on the ground, like environmental justice organizations locally and nationally. Um, And I also do a lot of hands-on policy work with environmental justice groups, uh, particularly in my hometown of Newark and New Jersey, generally in in the region in New York. trying to pass legislation like environmental justice or cumulative impacts legislation directly uh, with legislators and um, advocates in coalitions, but then also doing research on, for example, climate justice mitigation policies or energy policies that address um, the needs that have been Uh, uh, expressed by community groups on the ground. So, for example, we provide like technical assistance to groups and try to put together research um, done together collaboratively on um, pathways to cumulative impacts policy or, you know, ways that communities would like to see energy efficiency programs directed on the ground in communities. So, um, yeah, most of my work is is directly tied to groups uh, working actively on environmental and climate justice issues. So yeah, a little bit of everything.
1: Thank you. Thank you. So this question is for all of you, any of you, you can jump in um, as you would like, but climate change is often framed as a future occurrence. Can you help us to situate it within the context of events that are happening right now?
3: I will say that climate change is happening now. Um, We are in the period of Time that we uh, formally call the Anthropocene, which is marked by uh, pretty unnatural, um, anticyclic perturbations to our natural climate that are caused by human activities, uh, largely the emission of more carbon into the atmosphere than um, is usually emitted dur- in, during natural cycles. I like to explain to my students that how we see this manifest is it, it's pretty much a disturbance of the energy balance of the earth. So you get more rain over here, less rain over there, uh, uh, a wobbling of the jet stream and the polar vortex will dip down to Texas and you get massive uh, wintertime disruptions like we saw this winter. And so it's not just about the global warming, it's about the energy balance being thrown off and we're seeing that manifesting all over the world.
1: Jackie or Anna?
2: Yeah. So just to pick up from there, we see how that plays out in, in communities. Whether it is the we work in a community in um, Laredo, Texas, on the border, and we're and and as I talked to the to the proprietor of this group called the the Holding Institute, who does immigrant immigrant rights work and immigrant services work, and he talked about when he does intake for the people who are coming in. To a large extent, they're talking about how their cro- crops are drying up, or they're talking about how disaster has driven them from their homes. So there's been a increase in in um, climate forced migration, as they say, as a result of these of these uh, shifting shifting conditions that that Sunny described. Um, also, when we see, you know, everything from the forest fires to the floods that are happening right now, and the in the increased the floods that used to happen every hundred years are now happening on the regular, and we're seeing communities that are literally being, you know, wiped away by these by these types of, of, of floods. Um, and then we're seeing with the shifts in agricultural yields, it's not just in Latin America, but also here in the in the U.S., where there's communities where there's. Uh, but there's farmers who are reporting that we work with Black farmers in the Black Belt who are already struggling in terms of uh, maintaining their farms, but now with the drought and, and, and drying up of some of their crops and the, their lack of kind of uh, the equipment and so forth that they need to be able to, to compensate, um, then they're, they're finding themselves being concerned about their livelihoods and ability to sustain those farms. So those are just a few examples that we're encountering.
1: Thank you. Ana?
4: Yeah, I guess the only thing I'll add is um, you know, we're doing an assessment in the New York City region. We do a three year, four year assessment, um, you know, every three or four years and looking at the the trends. um, And what's clear is, you know, all of these things that urban heat island, heat stress, flooding, um, you know, all, all these stressors are laid on top of already existing inequalities and, and, um, you know, it's impacting people that are already suffering from a myriad of legacy pollution and other um, socioeconomic conditions uh, that make them more susceptible to a lot of these increased climate risks. Um, and so, and at the same time, in places like New York City and other global cities, um, not only are we seeing those increased impacts and uh, in the layering effect example, with COVID, you know, COVID deaths increasing in communities of color, um, and also in places where there's high uh, amounts of air pollution, right, Uh, mortality and air pollution um, coinciding. But then we also have um, issues like climate displacement and green gentrification that, you know, in places like New York City, where they're trying to make investments in climate resiliency, the people who are benefiting often from the resiliency investments uh, may not be the people that are most vulnerable, um, and so we see these displacement effects at the same time that we try to make investments um, in in uh, green infrastructure and, and things of that nature. So um, there's all sorts of rippling effects that happen when you disrupt, when you layer on top of an already unequal system, uh, more in more in complex and complex, and more urgent and, and rapidly increasing shocks to the climate. So it's Um, It is really an interesting time um, to be seeing all of these things happen in, in real time.
1: Absolutely. Thank you all. So most people today are somewhat aware of climate change, but fewer people are familiar with the concept of climate justice. Can you talk about what climate justice is and what some of the major issues in climate justice are that we should be aware of?
4: You know, I can, I can, uh, jump in. (laughs) I I just taught a class last night. I teach an environmental justice course. And, uh, in last, last night's class was about climate justice and just transition. And, uh, and one of my students, um, really bright young woman, she's like, well, how do we, this is such a complex idea. How do we talk to normal people and explain how, you know, big of a, Thing this is. It's so hard to explain because I was like, you know, imagine you have to explain this to your grandmother or, you know, your roommate. What would you tell them? Climate justice is. And they were having a really hard time because climate justice, unlike, you know, it's not just about CO2 molecules in the atmosphere. Climate justice indicates that we care about social justice We care about the benefits and burdens that are being felt in the world um, around the climate impacts and risks. And it it really gets at the heart of what's the root cause of climate change and looking at climate change as a symptom of much deeper problems, systemic problems in an extractive economy uh, that really harms people and the planet. And so it's really tying inequality and social justice um, to the symptom of climate change and to the, the systems that are giving rise to that. Um, yeah, and it requires us to think about critically about how do we deal with those underlying systems um, rather than just paying attention to moving CO2 molecules around the atmosphere. Um, yeah, so it centers social justice and, and the solutions it's not climate just if it doesn't center solutions in the people who are feeling the impacts and experiencing the impacts firsthand. So to be a climate, to be climate justice, you have to be pen, paying attention to those uh, frontline voices.
1: Thank you.
3: Jackie or Sunny? Uh, I wanted to give the floor because you all work more closely in justice than I do. Um, but as a person that works and try to analyze systems, right? Um, The three questions that I pose, um, Jade, as you ask us what's climate justice, I want to know who's perpetrating climate inequalities, who suffers from those inequalities, and who's going to pay for the solutions to fix it. And essentially, the injustice comes in in the fact that the people perpetrating these things are not the people who are suffering the most, um, the people that eventually have to pay for these solutions um, and they end up being people that are probably economically disenfranchised. Um, and it's not just happening in the United States. Um, there is this notion of global north and global south, where uh, a lot of the emissions are being emitted in the global north, um, the United States, Europe, and China, whereas the global south um and especially uh island nations are uh suffering the most in 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 immediate time frames and so not only do we have these local dynamics, we also have global dynamics of inequality
2: yes, <laughs> um <laughs> definitely that and um and yeah, I mean, when I talked about that border situation, the u s is percent of the global population, yet upwards of 25 percent of the emissions that drive climate change. And yet when people come seeking seeking just to survive, um, they're met with cages and people using reins as whips and instead of what should be at the very least responsibility, but even just as a global c- citizen, you know, or as a global, uh, you know, neighbor and partner, um, uh, there should be uh, welcoming and refuge, and so there's a quote by Warshan Shire, a Kenyan-born Somali poet, who says, "No one puts their child in a boat unless the water is safer than the land." And really, that that tells the story there. Um, also, in terms of the, the the inequities that were described, I mean, there's just so many in terms of whether it's BIPOC communities that are dis, disproportionately impacted, or, or women who are disproportionately impacted. We know that in the aftermath. Of Hurricane Katrina and the aftermath of other types of disasters, that that um, violence against women st- spikes. We also know that in the context of the drivers of climate change, along the the uh, the pipelines and along the in, in the areas where the man camps are set up, where the oil and gas rigs are happening, that. Um, that there, there's a proliferation of, of, of um, missing and murdered indigenous women and trafficking and these types of things that are coming up along these, these uh, and sexual violence along those types of uh, areas. And so there's so many ways that whether it's women or BIPOC communities are disproportionately impacted, and this is where we see some injustices.
1: Thank you all. If I can also briefly plug my own research, um, research shows that in the aftermath of climate disaster, communities of color and women in particular also experienced strong negative mental health impacts, including anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay, so as I said at the beginning of uh, the introduction, this weekend, Sunday, is when the COP26 international climate change meetings begin in Glasgow. What are you hoping will come out of those meetings,
4: Jackie? You should go. <laughs> it's that's a hard one. cop, cop twenty six. You know, um, we are in. We are in. We're in a mess. I mean, we are falling way short of already weak voluntary commitments by nations, and the the, the biggest contributors in the global north are falling false far short of their, yeah, what, what, what they, they need to put up in terms of, you know, the impact on uh, the rest of the world. Um, so it is kind of depressing going into COP26 because we're at a pivotal moment where it is, we are in the middle of a climate crisis. It's rapidly increasing. Um, we have less than a decade. And the political will... To shift course dramatically, not incrementally, um, does not seem to be um, present on the global stage. And I, at least not in the COP20, in, in the COP26 gathering, but I think outside COP26 <laughs> is a different story where you have delegates and activists and people from all over the world converging, young people, women, indigenous communities. Um, who are demanding a really transformative shift, you know, and saying like if we are serious with doing anything in a decade, we have to completely shift course, we have to start challenging these industries and these corporations that have a hold on uh, our political will. So that's my my hope is more on the outside of COP26. I don't know how Jackie and Sonny feel about it.
2: Sonny, okay. Uh, oh, okay, good. So, <laughs> yeah, that. Pretty much the same I mean my my hopes going in are are in this case in the past it's just been you know uh, it's been so low and this time it's, it's it's similar and at the very least I'm hoping that the U.S. doesn't play an obstructionist role as it has in the past so if it if it at least does that then I'll be you know I'll be relieved, I guess I'll say. <laughs> Happy it would definitely be a stretch. And um and then just hoping that uh, what what can can happen during these cops is that it becomes a stage and a platform, you know, because the media is focused there to really lift up some of the demands and the visibility on some of these issues, as you say, outside of the cop space, but like helping helping people to, 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 to focus in for a couple of weeks on the reality of what we're facing. So already you're seeing, you know, on, on the news channel, on CNN and so forth, more of a feature, a featuring of these challenges. And so hopefully if, if frontline voices make it into the media, then we can at least hope for that, I would say. But in terms of the actual proceedings themselves, the hopes are fairly low, I must say.
1: Thank you. Sunny, do you have any thoughts? Right. I'm also pretty hopeless.
3: I hate to say this. And my thoughts lie somewhere between Jackie and Anna. Essentially, um, I've been engaging with the Just Transition Alliance, that diagram that I think Jackie presented to MIT. And, you know, most of the world's superpowers are pretty committed to maintaining an extractive economy, which is driving the climate change. And, I don't think that the powers that be are going to be willing to come off of this um, loyalty to the shareholder. There's, there's a shareholder loyalty that is pretty much driving all this. And unless we're willing, we, the proverbial we are willing to come off that, I really don't see where COP26 is anything but performative.
1: Yes, which is disappointing. Uh, I do have to say, though, that as Anna said The real action at the COP meetings does happen outside of the official proceedings. I remember Jackie and I were at a COP together, was that 10 years ago in Cancun? Yeah, it was 10 years. And it was quite exciting um, in the space of activism that was fruitful and vibrant and alive all outside of where the official proceedings were occurring. So, on this note, on this note of um, the COP and of politics in particular, as you all know, Persist is a conference that is focused on politics uh, through an emphasis on women's political engagement. So, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about the role of political leadership and electoral politics in climate issues beyond the international agreements, beyond the performativity, as Sunny said um, in the COP meetings. But what about the role of local electoral politics? Um, What more can local elected officials do to move us in the right direction?
3: The first thing that comes to mind is land governance. So those decisions are made by local officials, uh, city people, county supervisors. A lot of the activity that is counterproductive for climate justice is related to land governance. And I think if people are elected that have that in mind, they can stop a lot of the decisions that are made that proliferate these injustices. For example, (laughs) um, uh, the warehousing expansion in the Inland Empire, the city supervisor, I'm sorry, I don't know, the city people will vote whether or not to change a parcel over to light industrial from residential agricultural to make room for a warehouse, um, they don't have to do that. <laughs> you know, the warehouses bring trucks, the trucks are not climate friendly, et cetera, et cetera.
4: Yeah, I'll, I, I definitely agree with, I'm definitely down with some sub national policymaking. You know, I think there's a greater level of ca- accountability and, and access that people mobilized and communities organized can try to effectuate. Um, local change at the state and and local or regional levels through their uh, elected officials, but also through the planning boards and zoning boards, um, regulatory agencies. You know, I think there's so much action that's happening actually all over the country led by um, climate and environmental justice activists and organizations. Um, And I saw in in New Jersey, in my hometown, we passed the landmark EJ law um, after many decades of trying to get laws passed that were strengthening the power of communities to say no. Um, in other places, you know, I did a study, I looked across the country and there were many, many cities and, and towns and, and counties passing their own uh, rules and legislation and new zoning rules to try to do exactly what study was talking about, you know, start holding these industries accountable, saying no to things that are not acceptable, um, and really trying to make investments. But I I think we still need the federal government. (laughs) We still need strong legislation at the national level. uh, And we need strong investments coming out of the federal government um, to give more capacity um, and and investments and also align with the work that's happening locally. But I I think people can really move significant change at the local and and state level.
2: Yeah, I think definitely, Sunny and Anna have said it all. And I think that I think that one of the mechanisms that that it would be great if people put in place to help to to strengthen the community participate community participation and governance is is participatory governance models like participatory but budget making uh, participatory budgeting yeah and um, and also there are some like the we the people of Detroit have were able to put together a kind of. It was, it was more than a community advisory board, but it was a, a, really a water board that where communities were engaged in decision making. And so between models like participatory budget making and kind of the next level of community advisory boards, there needs to be kind of institutionalized mechanisms for community engagement and accountability, government, government accountability to community, community input.
1: Thank you. I want to back up to something that Sunny mentioned, um, because living in the Inland Empire, this issue of trucks uh, and warehouses and the resulting impacts on air pollution uh, and really terrible air quality are front and center in this community every single day one of the sort of debates or controversies that tends to arise here locally but it's simply reflective of discussions that happen all around the country is this pitting of jobs and industry against environmental regulation right so those that um advocate against the number of trucks uh on the road on the freeways and the number of warehouses uh, that are cited in the community are met with a response of, well, we need these industries to create local jobs. Um, what would be our response to that sort of pitting of jobs and economic growth against environmental sustainability or environmental regulation? Uh, I, I think it's a pretty uncreative
3: argument. <laughs> jobs versus the environment. If we think about the companies that are perpetuating this, uh, Amazon, uh, say, uh, other people that move goods, the profits that we've seen Amazon incur over the past, over during the pandemic, are astronomical. And one would think that you would invest those profits back into the company to be more uh, responsible uh, in terms of climate change and air quality. They sim- the company simply won't do that. They are loyal to their, sh- their shareholders. and Instead of putting those funds back into the company to invest in electric infrastructure or even um, give those funds to local government to build dedicated truck routes and provide the infrastructure for the goods movement away from historically disadvantaged communities, they simply don't want to do it. So I think pitting jobs against the environment puts the onus on the individual when really we are coddling industry because we live
1: in a shareholder economy. Thank you, Sunny. Uh, Jackie or Ana, would you like to add anything?
4: I mean, we are dealing with a lot of warehousing here in uh, the New York, New Jersey metropolitan area too. Um, it's a little bit different than in the Inland Empire, you know, I but it's, um, it is, this, uh, the Amazons, all the logistics centers trying to concentrate close to the ports of entry in what, you know, we are sitting in the largest consumer market in the world. And so it's this industry that serves a region, a very white, wealthy region, high consumer market, but the people who are bearing the brunt of that infrastructure are the least consumptive parts of our society. Uh, And they're being asked to not only bear the negative impacts of the air pollution, all the infrastructure, but they're also um, being asked to power the industry with their labor in working conditions that are terrible, really, um, and that are not dignified working conditions for the most part. And, you know, it is not an uncontroversial topic when local officials who want more jobs in what have been declining you know industrial corridors. You know these um, mayors; they want the numbers. They don't necessarily look at the quality of the jobs and the holistic impacts. Um, and it does create real tension, you know. Um, and I think um, Sunny's absolutely 100% right. These these companies, um, if they if they want to move goods, they should be required to perform better in terms of human rights, labor rights, environmental impacts, and we as a government should be stepping in and saying, you can't just profit. You have to, if if we as a society have decided we want to be this consumptive, then all of us have to, because these companies have to pay their fair share. They have to put back in. So it is a false dichotomy because I think the idea is that we want jobs, but we want dignified jobs. We want the environment and we want the environment to be clean and who should pay for that? (laughs) The people that are profiting (laughs) need to pay for that. Um, and to be honest with you, I think there are segments of the population. I see this, I don't know if you're seeing that in California, but where we are, we're seeing a lot of suburban communities who are like, oh no, just concentrate all the facilities close to the ports, um, because they're, they're perfectly fine with warehousing (laughs) as long as it's not in their backyard. Um, and so, you know, there's also something to be said about, um, you know, if you all want the the Amazon package the next day, maybe some of you suburbs need to be taking on some of the the burdens of these warehouses, too, and thinking about how to make them, um, you know, clean and, and sustainable and, and dignified working places everywhere.
2: Yeah, I am. Um wrote this article a couple of, a few years ago now, called Jobs versus Health, an Unnecessary Dilemma. And it really calls out this kind of scarcity narrative that leads to making it sound like we have to make these choices, when really there's an abundance of possibilities and ways that we can have have well-paying jobs and livelihoods, have the goods that we need And that with the emphasis on need um, versus the excesses that we have in this kind of consumerist society. Um, But, you know, so yeah, so I just really echo what Anna and and Sunny said.
1: I'm just curious, there's been a lot of talk uh, over the past few years about the Green New Deal. Um, There have been other New Deals proposed, a Red New Deal proposed by Indigenous groups, a Red, Black, and Green New Deal proposed by uh, African-American environmental and climate justice organizations, do you feel like these, new, these Green New Deal approaches would get us further to where we want to be in terms of moving past this jobs versus the environment debate?
4: Yeah, I mean, I, those are all, uh, I think, amazing initiatives. I know in here where we we are, we have a, a, the Thrive Agenda, which is part of the Green New Deal platform uh you know there's a national coalition and then there's like uh, state and regional coalitions for the thrive agenda um and it is trying to you know really highlight the possibilities of an alternative economic development model you know where we're not asking people to sacrifice their health and their well-being to actually thrive and have uh, a regenerative economy so i definitely think these are the kinds of initiatives, the Red New Deal, the, uh, you know, the Green New Deal, all these initiatives are what we need need to imagine what a base of economic activity and wealth generation could look like that is not grounded in poisoning our communities. Um, And really, it it actually is lifting up the communities that have been harmed historically, and, you know, reimagining different systems of economic development, you know, I know, we're experimenting a lot with um, looking at food hubs, like regional food hubs, where we could like grow locally, but also sell locally and develop, um, you know, restaurants and cooperatives and cooperative supermarkets and and really trying to look at the food part of the um, possibilities. But other, you know, I know that there's lots of other ideas out there through those agendas as well. Um, So I, I really think that those are really promising.
1: Thank you. All right, let's move on. So our next question is, many of our audience members this evening are not formally involved in politics, although they may be very interested in it. What can they do to have an impact on climate change and climate justice, whether in their local communities or beyond?
3: Um, I'd just say participate in the local elections, listen to the platforms of your uh, city councilmen, county supervisors, and um, support the people and the the candidates that are more progressive <laughs> when it comes to climate policy and economic and just benefits.
2: Yeah, I would say also participate in once support anyone any local environmental justice groups that there might be in communities if there if that exists or if one's feeling really ambitious, if one doesn't exist, start start one. Um, Also, kind of, we need to, there's several shifts that we need to make in our society towards more localism. We need to start growing our own food locally. We need to think about, we need to start generating our electricity locally. So any of these types of initiatives that one could spearhead or be a part of a group that can start to 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 do whether it's like a microgrid or you know a community garden that then becomes a series of community gardens any of these types of things would make a difference and I would also say just begin start the conversation whether it's a tweet or something you retweet or um or it's a in your workplace it's you know suggesting a film like a you know a it's something you can watch together while having lunch um, that um, starts to, to discuss some of these issues. There's so many great films that would be good conversation pieces. Um, just start the conversation and be a part of, of helping to raise awareness would be a number of things people can do at different
1: levels.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with all those. I don't know if I have anything else to add, except, you know, maybe, yeah, you can check out the thriveagenda.org. There, there, are, there are chapters all over the country. So they have a platform and they have like ways that you can um, get involved, like either signing onto the platform or reaching out to your local congressional representatives to lend your voice. So there's a collective voice pushing in the same direction towards the Thrive Agenda. So that's like, you know, trying to, I think the social media approach is definitely, you know, a a great way to learn and also join with a collective voice uh, in pushing our elected leaders. But honestly, I, you know, I think what my fellow panelists suggested is the best to start locally, you know, really look at who's in your local elections and uh, your state representatives and who's representing your district in in Congress and and start there and who are the, the organizations that are pushing an environmental and climate justice platform that you can support. You can lend your volunteer or or monetary or whatever kind of support you can lend. Um, I think that's the best way to do it.
1: Okay. Thank you. I think a couple of you have anticipated my final question. I'll ask the last question and then after your responses, we'll take a couple of questions um, from the chat. But my last question is, what specific resources would you recommend that people read or watch or listen to? I know that there are some great podcasts. Uh, Jackie referred to films. Um, are there things that you would recommend for people who either want to get started or who want to go a little bit deeper uh, or get a better perspective? Where should they start?
3: Um, I'll send the audience to, to... Oh, I'm so sorry, Anna. Okay. No, no, you should go. Okay, I'll send the audience to the Front and Centered website. Um, they are an advocacy group in the Pacific Northwest. Um, also, specifically for the Inland Empire, the People's Collective for Environmental Justice. Oh, thanks, Yvonne Marquez. Um, that is uh, the, the link to the People's Collective website. She also, uh, highlighted the San Bernardino Airport Communities website. Um, those are the local advocacy groups that are doing a bang-up job, um, for, uh, advocating for the locals here. I would say the My Generation campaign as a part of Sierra Club is also, um, a really nice organization. They're more of a big green organization, um, that is actively working to support the
2: issues for Inland Empire. I'm glad you mentioned Yvonne Marquez, because I didn't even see this chat until you said that. <laughs> I was looking at the other chat anyway, so thank you for bringing that up um, to my attention. So I would I would say that groups like Front and Center, that the Climate Justice Alliance is a place where one can see many of the groups that are awesome, like Front and Center, that's one of the... One of the fantastic groups, and 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 one of the members of Front and Centered, and one of the leaders and founders of it is Got Green, which I love their work, and they're also on the Climate Justice Alliance site, so that's a good place to go and just see a lot of great groups that are doing fantastic work. I would also look at the Institute for Local Self Reliance, just in terms of places a place to go to see. of those projects that i mentioned that one can do whether it's like starting a community garden or doing all those different things the institute for local self-reliance has information about how you can actually do it and also if you are interested in doing it you could actually reach out to them and they could help you um, figure out how to to resource those types of projects so definitely suggest that as well and uh, the u.s climate action network membership oh did we lose Okay. Uh, the U.S. Climate Action Network um, also has a lot of great um, people that are out there doing the work. And pretty soon you'll be able to look at the uh, the uh, Chisholm Legacy Project site because we will, we're, we're developing a resource hub and really highlighting all the great work that's out there. So stay tuned. <laughs> Thank you.
1: Very exciting. I also want to make a plug. I, I love podcasts. Um, I really enjoy the podcast Hot Take. Uh, And then there's also another one called uh, Outrage and Optimism. I in particular enjoy that one because um, doing the kind of research that I do, I'm steeped in how people really are experiencing a lot lot of very negative and painful emotions when it comes to climate change. So finding resources that actually foreground reasons to be hopeful um, and to be optimistic about some of the change um, that is being made or that can be made. Uh, that podcast tends to focus there. Okay, so I think it's time for a couple of questions. We have about eight minutes left. I can't see the questions uh, in the chat. So if uh, I think it's Denise was going to send them to me, or if one of the organizers can let me know how to see the questions, that would be great.
0: Yes, absolutely. We will try to pin them on the stage. And if that doesn't work, I can read the question. Uh, one question is, have you noticed a shift in the demographics of those involved in climate justice? I feel there is a strong focus on young climate activists, but I'm curious to know your thoughts on this issue, shift in demographics.
4: I don't, I don't know that I've noticed a shift. I think, um, I think young people have always really been engaged in the climate issues uh, from very early on. Um, Yes, I don't know if I've noticed a demographic shift. I mean, I definitely think that more and more people are paying attention <laughs> as the some of the crises have, uh, you know, increased um, in intensity. Uh, but you know, I mean, I, in the climate justice world, it's very intergenerational too. You've got like young and old, and um, but definitely the young people uh, are making up more and more of the momentum, um, you know, pushing pushing us forward. So maybe I'm biased because I I'm in a school where I see young people
3: all the time oh I just moved to UC Berkeley and the Berkeley students more of the I'm going to be frank more of the white students are getting more uh, excited about uh, equity and justice and it's almost like an awakening where they're like we need to do something and we need to do something now
2: yeah, I mean I you know, so the communities that we work with are have been in the struggle for environmental justice for a, you know, for a while. And I am seeing uh, other communities starting to as, as as communities are on the front lines of climate injustice and really kind of take over the narrative from the narrative that was really focused on you know, polar bears and ice caps, which are all very important, and 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 it's intersectional with these other um, justice issues as well. So as that narrative has really helped been evolving, then people are, are explicitly naming climate versus before they might have been working on food justice or disaster equity or these different things, but now that we actually, you know, have a narrative that actually embraces what people are, are, are seeing in their own communities then there's more of a named engagement in climate justice, I would say, for certain communities.
0: Great responses, thank you so much. There's another question in the chat that is, what if we can't vote, how else can we support?
1: I would jump in on this one because my students tend to ask me uh, that question a lot, particularly students who are uh, under 18 or who are undocumented. Um, And I would say it really begins with what Jackie mentioned earlier, starting the conversation. Um, You can't have forward movement on these issues or even an awareness um, that they're intersectional or justice um, based issues when it comes to climate change if you're not having the discussion about it. And so, you know, bringing these discussions down to an everyday level, taking them out of the realm of, you know, big, large scale, abstract ideas, even out of the realm of science, but talking about people's lived experiences, talking about how the summers are getting really hot every single year. We just came out of this national heat dome that lasted for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, Living here in California, we are really concerned every year about wildfires for longer and longer stretches of time. Um, family members who live in other parts of the country. I have family in the South. I have an aunt who lives in Louisiana who we were all very concerned about her home during um, the major hurricane that happened on the anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. My sister, her family, they live in Florida. And every year during hurricane season, they spend at least several days hiding in the closet Um, as fierce storms are raging outside of their home. And these kinds of experiences are intensifying. So I think beginning with conversations that can bring it to a level of lived experience that people can relate to and see. And then from there, connecting to the larger issues that we've been discussing um, and then bringing it back to the really important issue of electoral politics, even if a person cannot vote themselves, they likely know other people who can um, and talking to them about really engaging their civic duty too, especially on behalf of those who cannot participate in that way is also important.
0: Those are all of the questions uh, that are in the chat at this point.
4: I was going to add if if young people out there, I was, I couldn't vote. My family couldn't vote. And we, um, you know, we did a lot of, just volunteer, we worked a lot with the local organization in our, in our community, especially for young people, if you can volunteer your time and, and um, participate um, with local groups, with the local, you know, if there's an urban garden or a local EJ organization organizing the community, um, that's a great place to get involved uh, and really get to know the issues firsthand and, and share your stories
2: I would just add just another podcast um, is the Hip Hop Caucus, um, think, think 100%, I think. Um, yeah, so just look that up.
1: I would also add here locally in the Inland Empire, the Center for Community Action on Environmental Justice um, is an organization that has been doing really good work for decades and uh, they have a range of issues that they focus on, but the primary issue for a number of years is they have another a number of campaigns to address uh, local air quality, air pollution. They engage local communities to do citizen activism. Um, there are a number of constituents that they engage with who cannot necessarily vote, um, but they can mobilize uh, as communities. So I would look at CCAEJ and then also... If you want to get involved in food justice issues, UC Riverside has an R garden. Anyone from the community can participate in gardening. Anyone from the community can participate through accessing foods, fruits and vegetables that are grown at the garden for free. Um, So that's another resource as well.
0: It looks like there is one more question that just came in. And that question is in regards to conversations, how to not gatekeep with academics slash science lingo, would you know of sources that make the conversation more general public uh, and easy to follow or generally accessible to the public?
3: As far as um, academic science and gatekeeping, I'm a strong believer that we as academics um, really need to acknowledge intellectual privilege, intellectual hierarchies. Um, We often sit between community and government. Um, I think the more of us who acknowledge that up front and approach uh, these sensitive issues with humility and empathy, I think that will uh, make some of these environments more fruitful. Sources, I'm not sure of (laughs) formal sources for that but I can say I am committed to challenging my fellow professors, academics to, to come, not, but to to acknowledge that privilege and, and wield it responsibly.
4: And there's, and I think Climate Justice Alliance, like there's some of the websites that were mentioned earlier, they have a lot of great, um, like really accessible, like memes and um, tools, resources, like, diagrams in, in, um, uh, in language anyone can understand and share actually, which is a great thing about having it be really graphic is like, you can share it out. Um, there's, oh, there's one of my hoodwinked in the hot house. You can look it up. It's free. You can download it in color and to tell stories with pictures about, you know, uh, false solutions to climate change and the alternatives. I like, I like this one. Um, organizing cools the planet which is another little organizer's guide um so there's there's some neat stuff out there um that you can find mostly on on non-academic <laughs> websites <laughs> to be honest
2: um movement generation also has some 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 good stuff in that regard as well and um also, we are, we've been working with groups like Climate Central and some of the university groups to really help to translate some of the science into usable climate action. And so um, we'll be doing more of that. We're rolling out in January and a sea level rise and flooding kind of training and certification program and throughout the year more along those lines as well. To really help to kind of bring these things like the, the prediction of sea level rise into something that we can actually take action on at community level. So,
0: I don't see any more comments in the chat. There was a question about activism. Okay. <laughs> oh, thank you.
3: <laughs> can you read it? I don't oh, see it. sorry how can academic institutions better support community activist activism especially those communities that are disproportionately negatively impacted by climate change uh, I, I i'm a school activist a scholar activist um, what i have found that is effective is i um stay engaged with the community org that i have community with <laughs> um peace edge and now front and center And frequent touches, um, sitting and listening, and just simply doing what they asked me to do, which is usually come out and speak uh, at a public hearing, sign a letter, um, give a talk. Uh, But um, essentially, and also, Front and Center has recently told me that they are interested in um, bringing the academic institution to the community um, via uh, a mobile vehicle. So just going out and
2: taking yourself out of the ivory tower
3: and into the community.
2: I'll just add in that sense that uh, a number of the university partners that we've worked with have been instrumental. And in, so everything from, like I was saying about the sea level rise work, the academic institutions partnering with our communities to help us to be able to predict and um, and address sea level rise, but also a number of student student groups, classes, law clinics have worked with us to develop our food food justice program um, a toolkit, a, a group work with us. That put together a spreadsheet that then became our lights out in the cold reforming utility to shut Off policies as if human ma- rights matter report, and others student work with us who put together a spreadsheet that later became our cold blooded report so like students have really been able to bring, and I'm working with a group of students right now to look, to examine the public utilities and public service commissions and the racial composition of the um, commissioners and how, and, and also the ties of some of the commissioners and also the gender composition of the commissioners, and, um, and then tying some of this to some of the decisions that are made, and particularly their ties to industry. And so really a number of academic institutions from different disciplines, from geology helping us with looking at the, The impact of of fracking on earthquakes to to law, helping us with these various um, things, to sociologists and and so forth. We really had a great um, great, uh, series of relationships that have been very fruitful for our activism.
1: I would just add to that. uh, University partners can do exactly what Jackie just referred to, which is community-based Um, research and participatory research that is really driven by community members that is responsive to community members needs. Um, And then even simple things like those of us who teach environmental studies courses, we can, when possible, get outside of the classroom um, and engage with local communities in ways that demonstrate to our students the real world impacts of environmental issues. So In many cities, um, there are environmental justice organizations that will lead you on what are known as toxic tours, where you can uh, visit the sites um, of, you know, sites of where there have been incidences of toxic pollution or, um, you know, community exposure uh, to dangerous toxins, chemicals, um, or... Uh, These tours also really take you to engage with community leaders uh, and organizations that are responding uh, to environmental and climate injustice issues. And so you can engage on the ground with what those communities are doing. But these toxic tours are another way that uh, academic institutions can really engage in partnership and develop longer-term relationships. So a toxic torque is is a one-off event, but you can use it as an opportunity to begin to forge longer-term relationships and have deeper, more sustained ties with communities in ways that you can leverage um, academic resources to support community needs.
4: And I'll just put in a plug for the Tishman Center, our center at the new school. That's exactly what we do. We do community-based participatory research. We follow the HEMES principles, the democratic organizing, and everything we do. So um, we really take the lead from organizations on the ground about what it is they want to partner with us on and be co-producers, co-learners um, in that journey together. So yeah, you can check out TishmanCenter.org. Um, to see
0: one model for for how we do it. Okay, I'm not seeing any more comments. Um, Jade, would you like to make any closing comments?
1: I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much to all the panelists. This was a really exciting and engaging discussion. Um, I learned a lot. I was trying not to take notes while also trying to listen to you, but I took a few down and... And I look forward to continuing to engage with you in the future. And thank you so much to all of the participants um, for engaging, for asking questions, for showing up, for listening. Uh, I'm sure you can find any of our email addresses by Googling us if you have further questions or want more resources that we can share with you. So thank you so much to everyone.
0: Thank you so much. This was an absolutely incredible panel. We appreciate all of you being here for this insightful, engaging conversation. We are now going to transition the stage and we'll be right back, hopefully with some Riverside City Council members. Stay tuned. Thank you, everyone. The Persist podcast is hosted by me, Denise Davis, Director of the UCR Women's Resource Center, and is produced by Rosa Castillo and the staff in the UCR Women's Resource Center. Check out our Instagram pages for links to more episodes at UCRWRC and at UCR Persist. If you'd like to sign up for our newsletter, please email us at wrc at ucr.edu. We hope that this podcast inspires you and those around you to get involved in the political arena because we know that who is at the table absolutely matters. Finally, if you have any ideas for who a future guest should be on the podcast, feel free to reach out and let us know.